Hello, and welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read there anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out my other podcast. There's a link to it on my site. It's called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, where I cover movies that are currently out in theaters or VOD or Netflix or something like that. You can check that out. That's at quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into another three-part series, as I tend to do on this show. I just covered films in which someone goes back in time in order to catch a bad guy that also has gone back in time. The three-part series that I'm going to do now kind of continues in the sci-fi mold. I'm going to be talking about three different movies in which there's a major city that's set in the future, kind of a dystopic look at what happens to those cities sometime in the future. The first of those three movies is going to look at Los Angeles in the future, and I don't think it's really the future. I'm recording this in the year 2019. This film is set in the year 2019. Just by coincidence, if you know your 80s films, you're probably way ahead of me. I'm talking about 1982's Blade Runner. Blade Runner is an R-rated film. It does have violence, nudity, and language. The runtimes, depending on what cut, there's like seven different cuts, uh, it's usually a little bit around the two-hour mark. Harrison Ford is the main star. Rutger Hauer, Edward James Olmos, Sean Young, Daryl Hannah, M. Emmett Walsh, William Sanderson, Brian James, Joe Turkle, and Joanna Cassidy appear in the film. The director is Ridley Scott, and the screenplay credited to Hampton Fancher and David Webb Peoples. It's based on the novel Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. Now, as I mentioned, this film is set in 2019, specifically November 2019. Obviously, this is a future that did not necessarily come to pass, although there are quite a few months here for all of this to come to fruition, I guess. The city is Los Angeles. Earth has undergone some sort of massive population, either explosion or depletion, depending on how you interpret it, in the urban areas. The city landscape is a mishmash of every culture. And almost everywhere you go, there are advertisements. The most prominent of these advertisements is this floating space barge that's advertising the off-world colonies. These off-world colonies offer excitement and adventure to people who are able to go there. It appears there is much excitement. That is true because six replicants, those are android-like creations that resemble humans in just about every possible way with the exception of enhanced agility and strength, and they were constructed to work as slaves on these off-world colonies. These six replicants commit mutiny, and they end up escaping to Earth, where they have been outlawed under penalty of death. They're here, though, to find a way to increase their four-year lifespan, and that causes a Blade Runner named Deckard, Blade Runner being a special LAPD task force member whose job is to kill any and all replicants, Deckard here has to come out of retirement. He's the best they have, so they tell him anyway. That's the basic setup. So much, so much more to the story than that. This film, as I mentioned, is based on the Philip K. Dick novel. It came out in 1968 called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? I have read that book. If you read that book as well, you know this film is very loosely based on that. In fact, it's almost like its own entity when you compare it to that, even though it shares some common themes and a few characters. Blade Runner does borrow its title from an otherwise unrelated book from 1974. It was a novel by Alan E. Norris called The Blade Runner. William S. Burroughs had been commissioned to write a script treatment 
for an adaptation of Norse's work, but it was instead put forward as a novella published in 1979 called Blade Runner the Movie, also unrelated to what appears in this film. Now, in these works, the term Blade Runner referred to someone who smuggled medical supplies, such as scalpels. That would make much more sense, since there are actual blades. No blades here. Hampton Fancher here, the original screenwriter for adapting the Philip K. Dick work, happened to have a copy in his possession of William S. Burroughs' treatment, and thought it had a somehow better ring to it than the titles that he had associated with his script. They had toyed with calling it Android and Mechanismo, or Dangerous Days was kind of sticking for a while. The producer of Blade Runner, Michael Dealey, agreed. So all the rights to use the title were subsequently bought out for the movie's exclusive use. And then they applied the term to these android hunters of the movie with no clear definition as to how the term came about, other than it just sounded cool. Now, the impetus for the Philip K. Dick adaptation started in 1975. That's when an independent film producer named Herb Jaffe, he had been looking into the possibility of turning Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep into one of his first produced features. And nothing much came of it because Philip K. Dick hated the adaptation that was done by Jaffe's son, Robert. The author claims that it had been turned into a farcical comedy and really did not like the way that it was going. Now, before this, reportedly, Martin Scorsese had expressed some interest prior to this in the late 1960s, around 1969. The book was relatively new at that time, but he never did manage to secure the rights. Now, a couple of years after Jaffe's attempt, Hampton Fancher would emerge with a new draft that did get optioned, and it focused more on issues surrounding the environment than some of the headier philosophical questions the film is now known for. Now, after Ridley Scott had originally turned down directing this film to work on Frank Herbert's Dune, the producer, Michael Dealey, sweet-talked him into a second-chance offer when Dune fell through, including this deal that would give him a cut of the profits. Now they had Ridley Scott, but they needed a Rick Deckard. Dustin Hoffman was in serious consideration for the starring role for a long period of time. He soon fell out of favor, though, once he started insisting on some creative changes that he felt would make the film work better. And that eventually frustrated the producer, Dealey, to seek someone who would work with the material a little bit better. Now, after giving a couple of dozen other actors a look, including Robert Mitchum, screenwriter Hampton Fancher's choice, he actually wrote the script with Robert Mitchum in mind, but he was... A little bit too old, they felt, for the part these days. Martin Sheen was also in consideration, but there are a whole host of other names. You think of a name, they probably contemplated that actor for the role. They eventually came to an agreement with Harrison Ford. Steven Spielberg recommended Ford be given a look, and they did give him a look, and they ended up hiring him. Though, once he was on board, it would be a very contentious set, because Ford and Scott were continuously butting heads creatively, Ridley Scott, then still a young director who concentrated a lot on the design and the minutiae, and Harrison Ford, much more of an actor and a seasoned actor by this point, feeling like Scott was going in all the wrong directions much of the time. Now, Scott had already worked for eight months polishing up the script with Fancher, so any more changes were treated with skepticism. David Webb Peoples did get brought in because of Ridley Scott's difficulty working with Fancher over the long period of time because Fancher had become pretty defensive about his original ideas and didn't want to compromise the way that Scott wanted him to. So he still stayed on, though, as a consultant 
for a few of the screenplay revisions. Now, a few changes were made to the original ideas, though. The setting was originally slated to be in the year 1999. Of course, that was changed to 2019 as the production design would run decidedly more futuristic in its ideas, and that pushed out the events nearly 40 years in the future instead of just 17. The location was also originally slated to be New York City before they dabbled in not naming the city at all, and then they eventually settled on Los Angeles, primarily because it's the location of the stylish Bradbury building, the location of J.F. Sebastian's abode. He's one of the characters in this film. Frank Lloyd Wright's Ennis House also appears in the film that was used for both Tyrell's high-rise interiors as well as Deckard's apartment building. And there were also thematic reasons here to choose Los Angeles. The weather in Los Angeles includes perpetual rain and occasional snow, though. That makes it seem somewhat implausible, but the name Los Angeles, the Angels, does kind of fit in with some of the vibe, especially as you get toward the end of the film. Once you start watching Blade Runner, it only takes a few seconds for you to get into the atmosphere of the film. We're watching this very breathtaking wide shot of the city. It's complete with the multicolored neon hues of cars as they fly through the sky. Yes, there are cars that fly in this film. The airborne vehicles, they're called spinners. They're flying among and over the buildings, all seen through in this opening shot, the transposed shot of an eye. Eyes are a central motif for Blade Runner. They're the key to determine one's humanity, as well as to capture and reinforce memories. And from there, there is this retro-futuristic vibe to Blade Runner that blends old Hollywood stories from 40 years before with these futuristic Hollywood notions of what the world we think will be like 40 years later. Rick Deckard here is the prototypical film noir detective. He has stubble, an overcoat. He perpetually drinks. You get the sense he has a life of regrets. And what's different here between what we saw in movies of the past and this vision of our future is this blending of the many ethnicities of the city with Deckard walking through neighborhoods that look distinctly Asian in culture and characters like the multiracial gaff played by Edward James almost talking city speak, which blends the languages of, among others, Spanish and German, Japanese and Hungarian. Now, in addition to eyes, another metaphor within the film is chess, you know, chess is the artificial representation of humankind doing battle at the hands of the intellectuals who are manipulating them for dominance. In this film, Roy Batty, the leader of this group of replicants, becomes the manipulator at one point to challenge his maker, Dr. Tyrell, with this gambit, gaining him inadvertent access to the heavens, so to speak, to ask for more life. Now, it has been claimed by some fans, one's more in the know than I am, that the chess game in this film involves the last three moves of a famous match now dubbed the Immortal Game. That was in 1851. And the Immortal Game is not only notable because it ties in with the desire of replicants to be immortal, meaning they want more life and as much as they can get, but also in the great sacrifices that they're willing to achieve their goals because this Immortal Game involved sacrificing certain pieces for certain men on the board in order to ultimately win. It's interesting to note here from the chess perspective that the name Roy in French means king, further fitting into that motif. Now, Ridley Scott has gone on to say that all of this was unintentional 
And there are others that have also suggested that this is a coincidence because the placement of the pieces on the boards between Dr. Tyrell's board and the one that Sebastian has don't even correspond to each other, much less the actual match. So none of it is really matching here. So it's kind of a coincidence. But it is interesting to contemplate on that level. Now, the broader motifs here of Blade Runner involve mortality and authorship and and God as humans have anguished over our own mortality and our desire to understand our own existence. The ending of the film in particular brings forward these notions of angels and higher powers with the crucifixion alluded to with a character putting nails through his palm and then citing a William Blake poem that kind of misquotes the poem saying, fiery, the angels fell, fell in the original poem was Rose, just as the replicants came down to earth in a fiery display after the mutiny. And we end this film somewhat with this vision of a dove flying to the heavens following one of the more poignant screen deaths in movie history. Now, the original theatrical version of Blade Runner was released with Harrison Ford performing some voiceover narration, which some claim was a last-minute addition to tie the plot together better. Thematically, it does kind of keep in with some of those noir films that it evokes that also had their own voiceovers. So thematically, they could fit it in, even though Ford would later say that he did the voiceover narration, which actually was intended in early versions of Fancher's noir-inspired script, and then they were discarded. He did those very reluctantly. Some have speculated that his lifeless reading of the lines, at least that's how it's perceived to them, was done on the hope that they would not use the lines. In addition to that theatrical version, there is also an international version that followed closely to the theatrical version, but with some gory violence that had been trimmed down for the American release. Although this version was released on home video, including the Criterion version in the United States shortly afterward. Now, a few years later, an employee of Warner Brothers discovered a 70 millimeter print. It actually is a work print that was done before the theatrical release. It was found in 1989. This was the one that was sent to test audiences that ended up hating the film, and that prompted them to put in the narration and the tacton ending. That ending borrowed unused exterior shots that were taken during the filming of The Shining. Now, this work print ended up getting shown for limited engagements in San Francisco and Los Angeles to great success in the years 1990 and 1991, and that prompted Ridley Scott to commission a so-called director's cut, one that incorporated a lot of his suggestions, but he did not have direct involvement in compiling. He just gave people notes to try to put all of this stuff together, and then they ended up releasing that film more widely into theaters the following year. Now, despite receiving praise for this cut, which many critics claimed was a marked improvement to the theatrical release, Ridley Scott was still dissatisfied with the director's cut because he felt it did not still adequately represent what he really wanted to do with the film. So in 2006, Ridley Scott would claim that a final cut of the film, one which he had been directly tinkering on and perfecting for several years, was set to be released into theaters again, which it would for a short time in the year 2007. This final cut enhances the effects in the soundscape as well as ties up a few of the thematic and narrative elements that Scott desired to make more clear. And that's the one that I think a lot of Blade Runner fans recommend as the choice for watching this film. Now, there are a little bit of spoilers here that I'm going to be talking about. So if you haven't seen Blade Runner, I think this is your jumping off point. 
I highly encourage you to see it. It is a beautiful and great movie. I think everyone should see this film. It's an essential movie in my category. But I am going to talk about a few things that are not hard spoilers, but I do think that they merit talking about within the course of this review and not everybody's going to want to hear them if they haven't seen the film. Now, while all the versions of the film tell very similar tales, the main introduction in the non-theatrical cuts is this notion that Rick Deckard himself might be a replicant, that he might have implanted memories and these photographs that are not necessarily related to him, and that he was a creation to take down other replicants. Now, while many viewers including Ridley Scott himself, choose to see the film this way and believe him to be a replicant, I do find this angle, from my perspective, to be problematic, almost to the point of ruining the experience for me thematically, if this were ever to be told to me as, yes, he is a replicant. Because I feel the contrast here between its core human character and his willingness to eventually come to an understanding about life, even among artificial beings, is far more resonant if he is a human being. By having him be a replicant, I think it causes the narrative itself to start making a little bit less sense because Deckard is clearly inferior to the replicants in strength and agility and his tolerance for pain. He even gets bested physically by Pris, the Daryl Hannah character. She was an android that was created merely to be a pleasure bot, a sex slave. And even she seems physically superior to him. So any replicant who is trying to retire other replicants but is vastly inferior to them in nearly every capacity just, to me, makes very little sense, especially as he also becomes like some sort of alcoholic on top of being outmatched by all of this. So he's kind of a broken down version of a man and pretty dysfunctional as far as I'm concerned to want to be the line of defense between psychotic replicants and the populace at large. Now, another contrast between Rick Deckard and the other human characters and the replicants is the way that emotions are handled. Deckard here, he's mostly stoic throughout this film. He relies on alcohol to cope with some of the stress. The replicants are much more childlike. They're essentially very smart due to their programming, but they're kind of like three-year-olds emotionally trapped in these adult bodies, and that causes them to act either playful when they're happy, or they lash out with tantrums when something ends up displeasing them. And the irony here is that Tyrell himself claims that replicants have no emotions, although we do see them on display, until they're near their end of their four-year lifespan. Now, some of these replicants we come to find out are closer to the three-year end, so I don't think that that necessarily holds true either. Tyrell claims that this lack of emotion makes them better suited for slave labor, and those memories that they've implanted keep them grounded, although the fact that this does not bear as true suggests that either Tyrell is using that as an excuse to sell his product better, or he really has not been observing his creations as closely over time to see the folly of his statements. Now, also, the story arc of the person responsible for killing the replicants undergoes a change that involves empathy by the end of the movie, and that's incredibly resonant as a thematic arc on what it's like to be human, even without the biological definitions. It's far more poignant for a human to discover than it would be for a replicant to empathize with his own kind, even if unknowingly. Deckard, being a human, keeps things very clean and very tidy, and it makes narrative and thematic sense for this movie. 
Harrison Ford and the screenwriters and the crew were all on board with Deckard as a human during the shoot. It was Scott's interpretation and Scott's alone that ended up getting developed midway through the production due to this misunderstanding between the two screenwriters, Fancher and Peoples, gave him the suggestion that Deckard might be a replicant himself. He redid the cut later to make it seem like it could go either way. Deckard as a replicant, while it is a cool twist to throw out there post facto, does make things messy and it opens up far too many other questions and it shoots down the themes on humanity and mortality to a less philosophical degree. I can accept human, I can accept it keeping it ambiguous, but once you define Deckard as definitively a replicant, I personally would find Blade Runner a good deal less interesting to contemplate, at least not nearly as much as I end up contemplating it now, which is substantial for a film. Author Philip K. Dick, he would never see the finished product. He died on March 2nd, 1982, and that was just under three months prior to the release of Blade Runner into theaters. Philip K. Dick was initially concerned about the direction that Hampton Fancher was going through with the material, but he did begin to see promise when David Peoples' revision was brought to his attention. He ended up getting more on board, although he did not get to see the finished product to see if the film did justice to his book overall. He had been very complimentary to the production that he did get to see on one instance where he did get to visit the set. He stated that Ridley Scott had captured the look that he had envisioned in the novel to a T. Scott, it should be noted, has never stated that he has actually read Philip K. Dick's book. He claimed he tried to, but it was too dense. He didn't get very far. So it might have been kind of a coincidence that what he envisioned and what Dick envisioned were on the same page. Now, Blade Runner had been made at a very considerable cost for its time. It had a budget reportedly up to about $30 million at its high end, and that made it one of the most expensive films of 1982. Nearly $2 million went to the production design. Even more ended up getting spent drawing in Sid Mead to design the futuristic flying cars that are used within the film. And yet, it's all there on the screen. It is a beautiful-looking movie to take in. Critics, though, were a bit mixed on the results. Critics at the time put most of their praise on the atmospheric visuals and the set design, and they gave the film high notes for its sublime electronic score from Vangelis. They felt that the story lacked compelling or likable characters or a coherent plot. Its production design and its visual effects would earn it two Academy Award nominations, the production award, though, would go to Gandhi, and the effects one would go to E.T. It did score three BAFTA awards for its costumes, production design, and cinematography, though. And because of the cost, Blade Runner would be seen as a failure at the time of its release. It made it around its production budget, and that really does not take into account its expensive marketing push. So it ended up really losing money. And the misleading marketing, I think, contributed to the problems with the critical and the audience reactions. It was sold as kind of a big sci-fi action movie instead of the more contemplative exploration into humanity and mortality, using its setting to better explore these themes metaphorically. It also didn't help matters that the juggernaut known as E.T., the extraterrestrial, was its competition for the entire run in theaters, which, in addition to driving people to come out to the theaters for multiple viewings of E.T., it radically changed what people really wanted to see from their science fiction. They wanted a little bit more family-friendly, which Blade Runner was not. For years, Blade Runner would end up being considered a cult movie. Eventually, it would become a cult classic, and then, because of its visual influence and its themes regarding artificial intelligence, it would be replicated by many, many other directors in many other films. And now, it is firmly established as a classic science fiction film by pretty much any standard. 
an ever-growing amount of film lovers consider Blade Runner to be a science fiction masterpiece, and you can count me as one of them. There are breathtaking visual effects. They highlight this very gorgeous, this thought-provoking, futuristic film noir tale, this amazing score by Vangelis. This is more than a simple detective story. This is a multi-layered and very profound film. It speaks to such weighty issues as humanity and memories and dreams and this vision of a future that changed the face of science fiction forever. You know, when I watch this movie, I'm reminded of the scene in the film 12 Monkeys where it's remarked by Bruce Willis regarding Vertigo, the Hitchcock film, about that film seeming different upon watching it now instead of when he was younger. And it's not because the movie changes, it's because he's changed and he notices different things upon viewing it. Blaine Renner, to me, is one of those films. It always changes for me over time. As I get older, I appreciate different aspects of it. And that's what makes it, to me, a masterpiece. It's my personal pick for the greatest science fiction film of all time. I truly adore Blade Runner. So, of course, what else would I give it? Four stars out of four on my rating scale. Four stars means I recommend it to everybody. Obviously, this is an R-rated film. It does have some gory moments. If you're sensitive to violence, it may not be as wise of a choice. But I think... In this case, it's really worth it because of the important themes of the film. So I really do encourage people to at least strive to watch Blade Runner. It is just an amazing movie. And keep an open mind. I know there are people that end up getting hyped up on this film and then they end up watching it. And then they say, oh, you know, I I was expecting more. And I think part of the problem here is that so many other films have ripped off or paid homage, I should say, to Blade Runner. That it's so ingrained into the science fiction language of filmmaking that it almost seems unspecial, even though it's it's an incredibly special movie that really redefined, I think, science fiction and our visions of the future. That it's one of those cases where I think people who are not in the know of movie history, who are expecting to be blown away, will just see a lot of things that they've seen in many, many other movies that have basically taken from the themes and the visuals of this movie. So please keep that in mind when you do see this film, because there was really nothing before Blade Runner, maybe Metropolis, which I guess it owes a lot to, that really comes close to what Blade Runner does achieve. Four stars out of four for Blade Runner. Obviously, there was a sequel to Blade Runner. It came out just a couple of years ago. Blade Runner uh, 2049. It is a movie that came out in 2017. I will not cover that for the course of this movie. In fact, I've already covered this in podcast form. If you go to the Quipster Film Review Podcast... I have a review of Blade Runner 2049. If you want to hear more, though, about my take on Blade Runner 2049, just seek out my other podcast, the Quipster Film Review Podcast. Links on my site at quipster.net. That's at Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. As far as what I'm going to be covering next time, we did look at futuristic Los Angeles, the dystopia that it is there. Another dystopia I'm going to talk about is a movie. It's an animated feature and another very influential film. It is 1988's Akira, in which we look at uh, kind of a Neo-Tokyo in that film. So I do encourage you to check that out. It is another classic film. I haven't seen this one for quite a long time. I'm looking forward to digging more into it for next week's review. A classic anime film, and some people consider that a masterpiece as well, for next week's episode. Until then, thank you, everyone, for joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. <laughs>